Welcome to I Am Helen Keller's Daughter podcast. My name is Laura Newman, and I want to share my story about my mother's deafness, blindness, and dependency on prescription medication, her schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and the resulting of my chronic trauma throughout my childhood and adulthood. I'm currently an unexplored speaker, eager to share my story of resilience with anyone who wants to listen and who will find meaning and learn from my life. My vision is to help listeners discover what it feels and looks like to live without sight, hearing, connection, and love. The unknown community of the deaf and blind world, children of deaf adults, and the association of cultural awareness that my parents were without, and us, that subsequently hurt two forthcoming generations. I will share all of my pain and everything I learned. I provide real life accounts in my healing. Welcome back to podcast seven. I'm so excited to be back again. Uh, our last podcast was pretty heavy. We talked a lot about how um, the root of rejection can manifest from experiencing things that are traumatic. And so we're kind of dipping into um, some of the outcomes of experiencing trauma and how that might manifest and lay out the trajectory of people's lives, especially for people that are not even acknowledging that they are feeling and seeing life differently. They might just think that this is the way life is until somebody points it out and says, no, you know, what happened to you doesn't mean that it's determining your future, but you're only seeing the lens through your pain and you don't realize that you're really having a, a, a life that's not as good as it should be. So, during the time when I was, you know, running away from these group homes, um, I would also get picked up by the police. And so what would happen is they would find out that I was a run runaway and then they would take me to the juvenile detention center that's in Milwaukee. And so in this juvenile detention center, like, I don't know how other places are. I've heard some stories about some detention jails for juveniles that were easy where you got to hang out and mingle with like the other sex and you could have pizza. Let me tell you this jail that I went to, it was like a real jail for adults. In fact, I almost feel like it was more uh, limiting than an actual criminal justice system or criminal facility because we were never allowed to have the opportunity to make phone calls when we wanted. We weren't allowed to have any kind of like snacks or treats or no commissary where you, you know, somebody gives you money and then you can buy like chips and soda or whatever it is that you want. We weren't allowed any of of those things. And it was ironic. It's not even ironic. That's a bad word to use. It was interesting because the girls were not allowed to go outside to play sports or anything while the boys were outside playing basketball in this like area that was fenced off. We were expected to work out and I'm not even joking. We would work out and then we'd play kickball. But for whatever reason, the girls would get so pissed that they would like end up fighting each other. And so that we were like limited from that. And so when I was in the juvenile, you know, justice system, it was scary. Uh, Our cell beds were so the cell bed was made out of concrete. So think about like a a two and a half to three foot um, concrete slab that's coming out of the wall. And then on top of that is a a mattress pad that's about an inch thick and you get one pillow and one blanket. Now on the other side of your cell is like a toilet and a sink and they all are attached. It's just one big silver, silver toilet sink. And then you have a small mirror that's been scratched on and written on and all kinds of stuff from every child that was in that room prior. And then you have a window, but the window is at the very top of your cell. So you can never see out of it. 
And then your door, your door is this big metal thing that shuts and locks. And you have a small mirror, or not mirror, but a small window that's probably, you know, three inches wide and maybe like one foot tall that you can look out of to see what's going on in what's called the pod. And the pod basically is this big area where we all, when we're not in our cells, sit down. All the tables are metal and they are grounded to the floor. And then you've got correctional officers that are sitting behind this um, big desk that my guess is just like the the area where you're opening and shutting doors and you're able to monitor everybody through this like electronic camera process. When you would shower, um, boy, I got into this pretty fast. I didn't think I was going to talk about this right away, but hey, since we're here. So when you would shower, um, you would have to go three girls at a time. You had five minutes to shower and your soap and shampoo were all the same thing. They would put the soap and shampoo in a washcloth and you literally would have to figure out how to navigate, turn on the shower, wait a couple minutes for it to be warm, and then sparingly put it all over your body and sparingly put it in your hair. And the door to the bathroom or the showers were um, closed, but it had a window. So you could potentially be taking a shower and everybody could see you. All of the staff are females. There's only once or twice where I saw a male correctional officer come in and, and that was kind of weird, but, um, you had nothing to put your clothes on. You would literally take your clothes off and put it on the side of the room and make hope that it wouldn't get wet. And then you, you know, you would shower. I think it was like every other day you could shower during like rec time. You could play cards. You could play games. You could have a pencil. You weren't allowed to bring a pencil back to yourself. And then you could uh, write letters. And that's basically all you ever did was hope that somebody was going to write you a letter back and then write to your parents or whoever was your caregivers and tell them how much you love them and how much you miss them. Uh, there was school. So that, you know, that was one of the things. But, you know, in all honesty, when I look back as an educator now, the school, the school system in detention was like pretty much like a fifth grade level, you were given things to color and that was called art. You could, there was like these little reading samples and that was called English. Nobody sat there and taught you how to, um, read and write or had critical thinking or, you know, challenging text to read and reporting, making reports about it. Nobody challenged you with math. I mean, it was, it was a joke. What's interesting though, is that was exactly the very first and only place, and I need you guys to hear that, the very first and only place I ever earned um, like credits for high school, where I actually got a high school education. And so that was where I learned um, nothing, really. I learned how to trace, and I learned how to, I learned how to be creative um, as far as like keeping my mind busy and not allowing my circumstances bother me. That was the maybe the, a big tool for me because I've carried that on with my life to not allow my surroundings scare me. And so I could focus and actually like get through the day without crying or being sad all day or being scared. But other than that, there's nothing. So I bring the juvenile detention center up because I'm sure it's a little different than it was when I was in there. And so, I mean, I'm 37. And so I was in the system as far as like early 2000, like maybe ninth, the, I know I, no, not even like mid 1990s, because my sister is four years older than me and she didn't, and she hadn't graduated yet. So early 1990s. 
uh, mid 1990s, later 1990s is when I was in the system. And so here we are in 2022 and it's a lot different, but imagine what it's like though. So I, I'm running away from home. I'm homeless at times. Um, I have nothing, I don't own anything and I'm no longer living with my parents. I don't even know what it's like to have a relationship. I miss them. You know, I'm grieving their loss. And so I need to explain a little bit about everything that's going on in my life. And then I need to kind of circle back around to my mom. So a lot of times social workers ask me like, so explain to me, why is it that after you know that you're going to leave home and you live in foster homes and your parents don't want you anymore. Why is it that every child always wants to go back to their parent? And I think there's a couple of, I used to be really shocked when they would ask me that, but then I started to understand that they were looking at it from a perspective of being an adult and they weren't looking at the perspective of a young child who has yet to develop their own identity, a child that has yet to develop who they are in, in life, where they stand, who they stand for, uh, what they want to be when they grow up, what social group they belong to, what they look like, how they love other people, um, their morality, things like that. We, you know, those are, it's like this. And then not only that, but like, usually that's the onset of like, um, you know, your period and things like that. And so you're, you're transforming because your hormones are going on and you're starting to feel awkward and you're, you know, you're, you know, you're just, you're evolving and you're having all these things going on and you're also mentally and emotionally and socially evolving to figure out who you are and where you stand in life and what is important to you and who you want to be and who you don't want to be. And so there's a lot of things going on. And not only that, but your brain, your brain is technically really scientifically textbook is not even evolved. Uh, there's major parts of your brain that has not even strengthened to its fullest capacity to be able to think in such um, abstract ways to rationalize and have this conscious thought process of making decisions without being impulsive with seeing things objectively with seeing that time doesn't mean that it's frozen and that things can carry on and things will get better and to be positive and have a mindset that is half, you know, the glass is half full and not, you know, and that sounds cliche, but the way you think and the way you perceive your world is a lot different when you're a child who's an adolescent to where you are as an adult, those those, those changes are not only based off of your experiences, but they also are very um, deeply embedded on your brain and how your brain develops. And so if the prefrontal cortex, which is probably the strongest part of um, thinking and the highest level of your brain of functioning, then, and it doesn't develop until like the early twenties, how could you ever expect an adolescent to be able to process what's going on and not stick to what they know and not stick to what's familiar and not be afraid of things that they can't even really objectively evaluate. And so that's the first and foremost thing. How can we, how can we as children not want to be with our parents, even though they are rejecting us and think about the outcomes of just being patient and living in a foster family and hoping that the foster family is going to love us. We can't think that way. We just can't. It's not even possible for our brains to think in those ways. 
Another thing I need to point out, and I think this is important, and you can tell by the way I'm talking, I'm so passionate about this because we need to hear these things because we, we're expecting these adolescents to behave in such ways that are adult-like, and we can't. We can't put that level of responsibility on them. We can't expect them to behave a certain way when they're not even equipped to behave a certain way. And so another thing is... Um, I didn't really realize that I knew what the feeling was like until somebody had passed in my life. Um, but when you lose your parents, it is, it's similar. It's, it's similar if equal to, if not probably a little deeper. I mean, I don't know cause I still have a lot more life to experience and losses to experience, but it feels like you have the person that you lost died, but they're still in the world and you can't see them. So it feels like a death. It feels like they have died because you're never going to see them again. You're cut off from contact. You're cut off from emotions. You're cut off from experiences. And all that you have left is the memories of what you did have, which is pretty much death. And so, and, and I'm saying these words not because I think that's what it feels like. I know that's what it feels like because that's how I felt. I felt loss and grief and you know, I kind of went through those stages of like denial to anger to, you know, trying to re put my life back together, thinking that I was never going to have them back in my life. I just decided to move on without even contemplating the idea that I could have them back in my life again. I thought it was done. And not only did I lose my parents, but I lost my siblings. I lost all three of them. So how could you expect a 12 or 13 year old to rationalize their experiences, make good choices, to think about their consequences of making choices like running away when they have lost um, five people all at the same time? That is, uh, it's the most heartbreaking feeling you could ever feel. It's like being in a car accident and losing all five of your your mom and your dad and your three siblings and being the survivor and expected to move on. And so if you think about it like that, those tra- that traumatic experience of being in a car accident and losing all those people is a similar feeling of losing all of your family and expected to move forward in your life without anything that's familiar, without them. And so that whole idea of post-traumatic stress, um, post-traumatic stress disorder is basically saying post this traumatic event, I'm really having a hard time coping and I can't let go of what happened to me. And now I am reframing my entire life based on what happened to me because I can't see anything around it and I can't see my way out of it. And you literally organize your life and your area choices around this trauma as opposed to seeing this as a hurdle that's going to take years that needs probably counseling and healing and what new ways of developing and new friendships. It, it, those things are not even available to your mind. You're stuck. You're stuck in this, this traumatic way of feeling. And so a lot of times, um, counseling and things like that require us people that have post-traumatic stress disorder to rewire our brains in the way that we see our life circumstances and to shift our bodies and our minds and the chemicals that we produce out of the stage of trauma and to see ourselves as people that are survivors, that we have gone through it. We are resilient. We 
and that we that that's an acknowledge that we understand that it's probably it's very unfair it's very hard it hurts and that we don't have to live in that anymore and that the people around us and the things that we have our opportunities in our futures are going to be different from our trauma and then we start to evolve and we start to be healthier and we see our relationships different and we make choices that are different and then our our stress responses within our brain and our body start to reduce things like that so now i did hit something that was probably very unaware um i don't know how many of my listeners know this but Post-traumatic stress disorder is not something that's limited to people that have been in combat or that are in the military or that have been in war zones. It's also very prevalent in children that have been neglected or abused. And so um, post-traumatic stress disorder is something that is very relatable to trauma, experiencing trauma. And we know that trauma could be accidents, um, terrorist acts, wartime, war zones, um, natural disasters, and then child maltreatment, which is right there with them, right alongside every other traumatic experience is child maltreatment. So now when I was in the juvenile justice system, I don't know who, who would look, nobody looked at me. So we're getting into some very, I'm telling you guys this stuff because I hope that there's listeners out there that realize I understand what it feels like and I know what it feels like. And then I'm also sharing this story because there's a lot of people in this world that don't know what it feels like to be in the circumstances that I was in and then maybe not be able to connect the dots to say, now I understand why children are struggling and they're misbehaving. Now I understand why, you know, my child might be kind of, uh, redirected and acting, you know, kind of antisocial. And I need to realize that their brains and their capacity of thinking, I'm asking too much of them or things like that. You know, I mean, there's a lot of takeaways from my story. And I think I just forgot my whole point. Oh, the juvenile justice system. So, you know, I, so I went through the trauma of losing, being lied to and losing my entire family, which feels like death. So you're asking me who feels like I just, lost all of my family and is grieving the loss of my parents and my siblings and who is now homeless and trying to figure out how to survive this new life on my own with no support whatsoever. And then I'm, you know, I'm getting locked up into this juvenile justice system. And what was interesting is nobody ever pulled me to the side and said, you know, I can't imagine what you're feeling and what you're going through. I am sure that your heart is just torn apart. And I just need you to know that it doesn't matter what, no matter what is happening to you right now, that doesn't mean that for the rest of your life, your life is going to be miserable. And you didn't do this to yourself. You are not the bad person and you deserve love and grace and put their arms around me and say, you are worthy of love and you are worthy of good things. Good things are going to come your way. Do not give up hope. Nobody has ever came up to me and said any of those things. And I mean, we're adults now, we constantly need some kind of reinforcement, some kind of approval, some kind of recognition in our jobs. We expect recognition for all the hard work that we do in our lives and our significant relationships. We need people to pat us on the back and say, great job. You're doing awesome. Despite your circumstances as adults, we need people to talk to us and listen to us and encourage us when we're in our weak moments. And here we are expecting these children 
who have nothing, who have lost everything to, to pull themselves up and to walk through it and not expect them to fall into bad behavior and to make bad friendships and to find people that love them that don't really, that are broken themselves. I mean, we just expect way too much from these children and then we turn around and slap them on the wrist for the mistakes that they're making and as if they have any control or support. It's very unfair, you guys. It's completely unfair. So the longest day that I was in the juvenile justice system was 93 days. I remembered it because it was the longest time I had been in there. I probably was arrested and incarcerated in the juvenile justice system. I don't know, 10 times, 12 times, 13 times. But the longest day was 93 days. And that was a big significant time. I will say it felt like a year being in that jail. It just was day by day by day. It just, it just kept going and going and going. And of course my court dates got shifted forward and whatnot, but you know what would happen when you'd go to a court date, when you're supposed to meet with the social worker and my parents, um, they would bring you in this pod that was like closer to the courtroom and they would leave you in there for like three hours. And I'm not even joking. Like they could have just kept me in my cell. And so I'm sitting in this cell that's all concrete, painted yellow. The bench is metal in my, my freaking jail suit, like literally dressed up as a jail, somebody that's in the criminal justice system. And I'm in this jail because I ran away from a group home, not because I committed a crime, not because I vandalized somebody's property, not because I robbed somebody nothing. I'm, I'm sitting in this jail because I ran away from a group home because I was afraid. So, you know, you're sitting in there and you can see that people had snuck stuff in and they were etching things on the wall. And, you know, you would see, you know, there's stuff, girls and boys would be in there. Cause you could see these like, you know, Brenda loves Dave, stuff like that. And you, I mean, you pretty much read all of them because what else are you going to do with your time? And then you're watching all these other kids alone in these pods next to you. Um, and you're watching their faces as they come back from the court case and they're crying because they're broken and they're crying probably because they're not going home and because they have to stay. And so you're just watching all these people. I mean, it's like, again, like you're, it's like being around all of these people that are broken and crying and broken down and you're sitting in a jail all by yourself, no support whatsoever. And you're supposed to figure out a way to be hopeful? Absolutely not. It's traumatic. It's, it's traumifying. It increases the trauma that's in pre- present in your life. It adds, it adds nothing but pain. So then you get pulled out and you get put in handcuffs and then you have to walk out and see all of these people who are free, free to go, free to walk, freedom over themselves, has their own families. And you're walking out in handcuffs like a criminal. And you have to face them and you're absolutely ashamed that you have handcuffs on and you feel absolutely embarrassed because you know, you did nothing wrong, but you are being treated as a person that had made mistakes and that is worthy of handcuffs. It's like, they didn't even trust me to walk out. I guess they thought I was going to run and I probably would have, to be honest, I would, I would have done anything to get away from the, the juvenile justice system. So you sit out there and again, you know, I, it was the hardest thing for me when I would walk into that courtroom, my dad wouldn't even look at me. I don't know what was up with that. And of course my mom wasn't there. My mom was nowhere to be found. She was never at any of our court dates for all the times that I got arrested and found, you know, and they had to figure out where they were going to put me afterwards. So we would sit there and, you know, my dad's got his like 
a defender that was appointed by the state and I've got my social worker who I've never met in my life. These social workers wouldn't even meet with me and get to know who I was before I would go out. I know it's different now. I mean, the whole family, it's uh, it's very person-centered, very family-centered. I mean, they've learned a lot since the time that I've been in the system. But people like me who are only 37, we are the one that are having to um, weigh in the outcomes, the way that we were traded and we're hurt. I mean, we're all, we, you have generations like myself and people before me that have been very hurt by the system. And so, you know, I don't even know who or he or she was. It was, I was mostly a woman and she wouldn't even tell me what was going on. She wouldn't even look at me and say, I'm really sorry that you're here. Are you scared? You know, uh, did you need anything? You know, she'd be sitting there with her little Gatorade as if I wasn't sitting there looking at it like, wow, I wish I could have one of those things. I wish I was allowed to have freedom. And so the judges, I would say most of them were pretty decent. I mean, I think they were just in the business of doing what they had to. They didn't really treat me unfairly. They weren't really mean to me. But there was one judge that did end up kind of like uh, telling my dad straight up, like, if you're looking for her and you're asking for us what to do with her, you should be the person that's taking her back. You should be the person that should be taking care of her, not us. And so that, that judge really made me feel free because he said in his words, he said, she hasn't done anything wrong whatsoever. And so we can't take her liberty away by keeping her locked up. And, and you're asking us, my dad, to send her to Eau Claire to a locked up facility where they keep girls I don't, you know, I tried to Google it, so I didn't find anything in Eau Claire. You know, of course, my memory might be wrong of like where it was, but it was a, it was a locked up facility where they would keep girls in this place until they're 18, then they would release them. And so my dad's hopes was that if I were to go up North, I would have no place to run to. And so I wouldn't run anymore. And since it was locked up, I would, it'd be even like double security to make sure it wouldn't run away. And so the judge was like, no, she's not even a criminal. She hasn't done anything wrong. She just is running away. So that was very liberating for me. Um, and I really mean that because I felt like somebody stuck up for me. And at the time, it might not seem like it was very significant, but for a person that is completely lost and living in a jail um, with all their freedom taken away, you're so scared that when you hear something like that after months of wondering what your next move was without any communication, it feels freeing to know that somebody sees the good in you, especially the person that is making the choices over you. And so they ended up putting me in a group home that was on the east side of Milwaukee. But uh, it was really hard because even after our court date, I couldn't even hug my parents. I couldn't even hug my dad. I couldn't say, all right, dad, I love you. Nothing. You literally get pushed out with your handcuffs around your wrists and you get pushed out. And this is for every juvenile that's in there. Everybody. It's a separation. It's the most painful thing. When you withdraw somebody's love from you, when you withdraw the people that care from you, it's, it's not even a punishment. You're changing the way that we feel about ourselves and other people. It's, it's not how you love somebody. It's just not how it works. And there's evidence and research that shows that withdrawal of love is not the way that you build good relationships and expect a person to thrive and to have good morals and to have, um, good social relationships. It's just, it's the absolute opposite. And so you're expecting juveniles to, you know, change their deviant behavior, but yet you're just 
putting them in a situation that makes them worse. It doesn't make any sense. But again, you know, there's a lot of things that we need to work on the system. And so even if the listeners today are listening and you know, somebody that has been through something, right? Like an adult, and you know that they were through the system and they'd been cheated and had child maltreatment, maybe you'll find it in your heart to just say, Hey, I, I know that some of the stuff that happened to you a long time ago was hurtful. I just want you to know that I'm really sorry that I, that I did this to you, or I'm sorry that that happened to you. And I just want to know that I'm pretty proud because I've heard how hard it is to come out on the other side and you should be really proud of yourself. Do you know how much healing that would do in this world? If we could just say that to one person, seriously, you could change, you could change the world by just healing one person because that healed person probably will live a better life and then they will do the healing for other people too. So, um, so there's a lot of stuff going on there. Right. And I think that it's important for people to know, um, not only what experiences are like in the system, but the way that our brains evolve, what trauma feels like, and then why it's so hard for us like me to, when I was developing and on my own and things like that, how hard it was for me to get away from the trauma. And so there's a book that's called The Body Keeps the Score, Brain, Mind, and Body, and the Healing of Trauma. Now, the author's name, I'm going to annihilate, but it's called Bessel van der Klok. K-O-L-K, Bessel van der Klok. And so the book is called The Body Keeps the Score. It's a very good book about how trauma starts, where in the brain it starts, where it gets stuck in the brain, what trauma looks like, and how our body, it remains in our body. It also talks about good ways to heal the body through um, your mind, your brain, and your body. So it's like a holistic approach. And so... um, it's probably one of the coolest books I've ever read. It really helped me heal. And it also explains, it's so interesting because I read it. I'm like, yes, exactly. My whole life, this makes sense. Yeah. So it's, if you're interested about learning more about these kind of things and maybe understanding people, because honestly, there are many people like me. I mean, I, just child maltreatment, uh, rejection, uh, uh, domestic violence in the home, one person incarcer- incarcerated, uh, very, uh, authoritative parents, uh, parents that were always withdrawing love as their punishment or p- parents that would use their power to rule over you and use punishment to discipline as opposed to loving and explaining why things are not supposed to be the way they are and how much they love you and how much they know that you are doing great and encouraging. And so there's millions of families that have been through what I'm talking about. And so there's a lot of people that are broken from it whether we want to talk about it or not. So, um, I did say I was going to talk about my mom. And so I will circle back around to her again, probably in podcast eight and talk about how, um, what I'm going to probably talk about is how my mom was very uninvolved. Nobody expected her to be at the court dates. Nobody expected her to be involved, which wasn't right. Because if anything with her lack of involvement, that was probably the first sign an indication, a red flag that something was going on with my mom and maybe that she needed some help and that if she wasn't present in my life in probably the most important areas, then where else was she not showing up? They also probably would have figured out that she had been very addicted to her pills and very isolated from her family and completely changing her life around, um, to being, doing things that were not good. Um, 
all of the children were gone except for my younger brother. So my older brother and my older sister had been out of the home before the age of 18. And so there definitely was some patterns going on. And so my mom needed some help in with the lack of communication, the, um, the lack of interpreters, the lack of awareness, the lack of looking at the entire family, the, the continuance of looking at the child as a problem, as opposed to looking at the entire family. Um, that a lot has changed for that, but we can talk about that more in chapter. I said chapter. Oh, you can call it chapter in uh, podcast eight. And then in podcast nine, I'm going to talk about, um, some other things and then I'm going to close it to the next season, uh, because we're going to be shifting from the very beginning foundation steps of my mom's addiction and how that affected me and how I got kicked out of the house and some of those traumatic experiences. And then to me talking about never making it to high school and how I was emancipated, which meant that I was an adult on my own at the age of 16, free to work, free to rent, and how that, uh, that, how, how that impacted my life. We'll talk about my mom's um, previous relationships before my dad and the violence, and then um, my unfortunate experience with violent relationships, and then we will eventually make it to season three, which will be the reunification of my mom and I after not seeing each other for over seven years. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening as always. And thanks for your support. See you again.